0: Hello and welcome to the If
1: you want to learn about more about CID and our events, podcasts, please visit CID.harvard.edu.
0: On today's episode of the Growth Lab Podcast, research assistant Sahar Noor interviews Lubitsa Nedelkoska, research fellow at the Growth Lab, who discusses the Growth Eye project in Sri Lanka and more specifically her research findings titled Does Sri Lanka Need More University Graduates? Thank you so much Debitsa for taking the time to do this podcast. You recently published a research brief as part of the Sri Lanka project at Harvard CID. The title of the brief was The Sri Lankan Economy Need More University Graduates. Could you please give us some context about that work and briefly tell us about what
1: the goal of that research was? Sure. Thank you Sahar. So this brief was prepared together with my colleagues, Tim O'Brien and Daniel Stock, also at the Center for International Development. And we started this work as a part of a more general project on diagnosing the binding constraints to growth in Sri Lanka. And one of the hypotheses that was often put forward was that Sri Lanka has very few university graduates, so just in comparison, Sri Lanka is middle to upper middle income country, and only 20% of its labor force have tertiary education compared to about 30% in comparable countries, and countries like the US and Europe meanwhile have over 30% of their labor force having tertiary degree. So very often, tertiary education is being mentioned as a roadblock to higher economic competitiveness and higher economic growth in Sri Lanka. So we wanted to test this hypothesis, and this is how we started this research.
0: So how did you break down the shortage of tertiary education? In which subjects?
1: Right. First, we started at a very aggregate level. So we ask questions like, what are actually people paying for tertiary educated people? And when you do this analysis, you wonder, is the, let's say, private or the public sector actually rewarding tertiary degrees? The intuition is that if the reward for having a tertiary degree is very high, this may signal shortage. And if the reward is low, uh, this may signal that the supply is adequate or maybe sometimes even too much. The other way to look at the aggregate before we come into the groups is to say, is everyone finding employment? And if everyone is finding employment, then it means, you know, the supply is adequate or maybe even too little because everyone is finding employment, so maybe some employers are struggling to find employees. And if many people are unemployed, then you can easily conclude that maybe we have too many tertiary educated, so we were looking at these two issues of employability and wages. And then because the aggregate picture may disguise a lot of heterogeneity on the labor market, we started disaggregating in terms of where people work, do they work in the private or the public sector, and also what are their qualifications. So an engineer may have very different labor market opportunities than a high school teacher. So then we started also disaggregating by occupations.
0: So when you started this disaggregation, what did you find?
1: So we found that overall, at the aggregate level, university graduates are very employable. So unemployment rates, no matter how you cut it, like uh, labor market participation is very high, both for women and for men, which is not the case for the less educated people, where labor participation for women in particular is very low. But if you're an educated woman, uh, you're very likely to participate on the labor market. Same for educated men. And if you participate, the chances of being employed are very, very high, both for men and for women. So we concluded that on the side of employability, kind of most people are finding jobs. However, on the side of wages, and here comes the question, actually, how do you compare wages? You can state that, let's say, the private sector pays a high wage for someone, but compared to, let's say, the public sector, but... The question is, are these two people comparable? Mm-hmm. So there are certain controls we need to take into account, like their labor market experience, their level of education, the cohort in which they they entered. So when we do all these controls, instead of just comparing rough wages, we can talk about wage premiums. And you always have to find a comparison group. So who are you comparing your wage to? And we did two kinds of comparisons. One was public versus private. But the second one was within the sector. We compared those with the highest level of high school graduation, which is A-levels in Sri Lanka. So we always talked about premium over the A-levels, graduates. So what we found was that in the private sector, the premium of having College degree over A-levels was very high. It's over 68% for men and close to 130% for women, which means women with a college degree on average in the private sector earn 130% more than women with A-levels only in the private sector. However, in the public sector, the premium is relatively low. Men earn about 30% more than similar men, but only with A-levels degree. And women with a college degree earned only 25% more than similar women with only A-levels. And this is kind of the interesting part that we were trying to resolve. Why are the premiums to education so high in the private sector?
0: So a Sri Lankan with a tertiary degree is much more competitive than his or her A-level counterpart in the private sector as compared to the public sector. So based on this, you would think that these college graduates would all go into the private sector because they're earning a wage premium there that's much
1: larger. Is that what we're seeing? Excellent question. That's not what we're seeing. And this is very interesting puzzle to solve for us. What we see is that of all college-educated Sri Lankans, 77% work in the public sector and only 23% work in the private sector. So the question is, what explains the choice of people to go into the public sector? And we have three hypotheses that we are yet about to test fully. One, which is already evident, is that there is a very... Specific sorting on the base of occupations between the public and the private sector. So, the public sector typically employs tertiary educated into occupations such as teaching and administration and some healthcare. But the private sector is looking for engineers, in particular IT professionals, IT technicians, managers, and people with business degrees. So, this sorting has play a big role in explaining the difference in the wage premiums between the two sectors. The other two hypotheses that we have is that there are benefits that are non-monetary, at least not immediately visible in the wages that we observe, to working in the public sector. One is job security. These people have nine to five jobs, while Sri Lankans in the private sector often have to work on Saturdays to work 60 hours a week. The other reason is the pension benefits, which, although they're present in the private sector as well, seem to be more prevalent in the public sector. And the third one is just the social status of these white-collar jobs. Especially for women, they're much more attractive to have an office jobs in the public sector than to have a blue-collar jobs in, in the private sector.
0: Based on your experience with other labor markets as well, is this something that's common, having a concentration of workers in the public sector, and then to also having this much higher wage premium for college education in
1: the private sector? So it seems to be common in developing countries. It seems that as countries develop, the distribution shifts. So just to give a little bit more context of this, the overall employment in the public sector in Sri Lanka is not large. It's about 15% of the overall workforce. So the 77% for the tertiary educated, it seems pretty extreme. Mm. But one reason for this in Sri Lanka and in other developing countries is that the private sector is just not creating enough complex and high value added jobs to accommodate for people with tertiary degrees. And therefore, the most suitable jobs for them are the ones in the government. So as the economy develops, we should be seeing a shift, especially as the economy diversifies and diversifies into more complex products, we should be seeing a shift towards more private sector employment as a share of total employment when it comes to tertiary educated. And the question is, is this too high for Sri Lanka to have this many People in the private sector, we think that it is. We think that at this level of development, Sri Lanka should be able to create more, more jobs for tertiary educated in the private sector.
0: So there's too many currently with college education in the public sector that right. should be as more, a more of As a share, the right. total,
1: as a share, total. Yeah. So right. we should see the share shifting over time.
0: So, private sector workers with college education are enjoying this wage premium that the public sector college graduates are not. You also mentioned that it is the STEM workers in particular who have the largest wage premium. Where are the STEM graduates? Why is there the shortage? Is it because there aren't enough graduating? Are they leaving? What is explaining the shortage of STEM workers?
1: Right. First of all, the tertiary education system is not... Sort of say, producing many of them, I was just recently looking at the numbers for for the UK, and the UK will create something like twenty five thousand engineering graduates a year, and Sri Lanka is creating more like two to three thousand a year and on top of that, many of them would leave, so we estimate something like twenty to twenty five percent would leave for other countries. So although wages for these workers seem competitive within Sri Lanka, they're definitely not competitive internationally. So the average wages for STEM workers in Sri Lanka are even lower than in the neighboring country of India that has much larger IT market. So we think that this outflow of STEM workers makes the problem more severe, creating shortages, but also the fact that not many are being educated domestically may exaggerate that problem.
0: So this is a difficult policy question where the government needs to find a way to produce more STEM graduates, but then if it does, who's to say that they won't all leave? So what are some options that the government can look into to work on this problem of skill shortage.
1: Right. So it's a very difficult question because if you think in terms of the state itself, the country itself, why would you invest into something that it's very likely to leave your country? But then after all, you actually don't have a choice but to educate them because if you don't educate them, you never get the chance to grow this sector. So I think Sri Lanka needs to create some kind of supply side shock. So, create sufficient numbers of well educated STEM graduates in order to attract companies to Sri Lanka or grow the existing companies in Sri Lanka to create a critical mass of companies that would then employ a critical mass of, of STEM graduates. If Sri Lanka decides to not educate more because they're leaving, they will never get a chance to actually establish a sizable. IT sector or engineering sector at home. So this is the price to pay, I think, and this is the price that many developing countries have to pay in order to give themselves a chance to develop.
0: So are there examples of other countries that have faced similar challenges in terms of skill shortages in their own country, and then also a brain drain of the top talent leaving the country when it's needed most? And what sort of experiences can Sri Lanka learn from?
1: Right. So I can't speak specifically whether this raised to a point of a skill shortage at home, but certainly I can think of two examples where there was a massive brain drain of specific occupations. Mm -hmm. But over time, we saw that this brain drain turned into brain circulation in a way. Perhaps the best example is the one of India that was losing a lot of talent to the United States and especially among the IT professionals. Even now, there are millions of of Indians that are studying and working in the United States. And if anything, the numbers are growing, not declining. But since the 1990s, and it's an ongoing trend, we have also seen a lot of return of this highly educated, now highly experienced IT group. And they have started to develop technological hubs. They are connecting India to the rest of the world, and they're making India one of the major IT hubs bringing along know-how that they gained in the United States, but also bringing along venture capital and connecting hubs in India to the rest of the world. So in the long run, in spite of the large brain drain, this turned out to be very good investment for India. The other case is the Philippines, where a lot of Filipinos are leaving for the United States and some other countries to work as uh, healthcare workers and philippines was facing the same problem should we educate more healthcare workers knowing that they will leave or should we just stop educating so that we keep them at home and their ultimate decision was to educate more because these healthcare workers are actually sending a lot of money home this is the way that they're building their families and also this is their ticket to better life which At that time, the Philippines couldn't give to them. So I think through these two examples, we get some at least anecdotal evidence that the solution is not less education, but more of that education.
0: And does vocational training also have a role to play in this?
1: Yes, vocational training can definitely play a role, especially because vocational training where when adequately designed, bridges the gap that the traditional like more general education system is not able to bridge which is the gap between what the industry immediate demands are and and the skills that people have so while it's easier to shape vocational training curriculums it's harder to shape the general education curriculums to what the industry needs
0: So to wrap up, I think we can go back to just the title of your research note as well. Do you think that the Sri Lankan
1: economy needs more university graduates? So the Sri Lankan economy needs more specific university graduates. And what we are more sure of, at least based on these findings, is that it probably can take more university graduates in... IT subjects, in engineering and science subjects, and more university graduates in business management and healthcare. For the rest of the subjects, we're more skeptical because we don't see the absorption rate, especially not from the private sector, that we would like to see in order to raise this issue to an issue of skill shortage.
0: So while the government works on this policy of, okay, we're going to work on increasing the number of university graduates in these important fields. What can be done to make sure that the companies in these fields can find the labor that they need at
1: this time? So the way many companies solve this issue in other countries, although I have to say that developed countries are much better positioned to do this, is immigration. So countries like the United States, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, Singapore, Hong Kong, they all rely on very large inflows of foreign workers. This is very attractive because they get these foreign workers already educated. So they're, they amount huge savings in terms of investment in education because some other country like Sri Lanka educated them. And they're ready, you know, with little preparation, they're ready to go. So that's one way in which Sri Lanka could think in terms of closing skill gaps. But of course, many other things need to be at place like adequate wages and adequate working conditions. And probably for many of these people who are married or have dependents, immigration policy needs to allow for the right kind of perspective, not only for that single worker, but for the family.
0: So I know I said I was wrapping up, but one last question. You mentioned that immigration can be a way that Sri Lankan companies in tech, engineering, etc., can use immigration as a way to attract the workers they need while the supply of Sri Lankan graduates might not be there. So if Sri Lankan graduates themselves are leaving to go to India or Singapore for opportunities because they are getting higher wages there. Why would somebody who doesn't even have that you know, attachment to Sri Lanka come in when the wages are not comparable to India or the field itself is not as advanced?
1: Right. So this is a very important point. And of course, if you cannot pay high wages, you need to compensate in some other ways. So I think Sri Lanka has a long way to go to think in terms of promoting itself as a place for other people to live in. We've both been to Sri Lanka and it's a wonderful place in so many different aspects that offers way of life that many other places do not. So I can imagine that many people could be attracted by the quality, the of, life. quality of life and other opportunities and its nature and its lifestyle, which many other places do not offer. So I think if they would like to inquire this route of getting more skilled workers, then they will need to do some kind of promotional strategy to get people familiar with the lifestyle and the standard of living in Sri Lanka.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Debita. It's a fascinating paper. And if anybody would like to read this research note and other work that CID has been doing in Sri Lanka, you can go to srilanka.growthlab.cid.harvard.edu. If you weren't able to memorize that link, it will be available in the podcast description as well. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the Growth Lab's latest research and events, please visit growthlab.cid.harvard.edu.